And it, I like barbecue. Barbecue likes me. Yes. Good morning. It's great to be here on a snowy winter day, and you are so faithful to be together. And uh, we are in the middle of Eyewitness News series, and we're in Mark, the 13th chapter. And um, last week, Pastor Rob did such a wonderful job of, of just opening up Mark 19 to us. I wasn't here. I was speaking at Red Rocks down in Denver, but I got his notes and looked at it. It was just tremendous. And the, uh, the challenge with Mark 13 is that, that it's predictive. And that's why we call this, are, are we there yet? This is, are we there yet? Part two. And uh, that's a kid's question. Are we there yet? You know this. You have little kids, you get them in the car, you're going to the grocery store, you back out of the drive, you go one block and they say, well, are we there? Is it close? Are we? we used to take our kids when we lived in Urbana, Illinois, to California every other summer. So we did this like half a dozen times. And we would leave after church on Sunday night. We had Sunday night service, 9 o'clock, get the kids in the back of the station wagon with a mattress, this station. For those of you who are younger, station wagon was a car we used to have. There are not so many now, but vans now. But then it was station wagons. We put a mattress back there, and we just... We just go, you know, and, and uh, we wouldn't be 10 miles out of town. They'd say, well, how close are we? Well, when do we get it? Because kids don't have a good sense of time, you know, time and space stuff. If it's not now, it's, it's not ever hardly. And, and we would drive all through the night. They'd be sleeping. We'd drive all through the night and get to Shamrock, Texas at 3 o'clock the next afternoon, stop at the old Ranger Motel. They had a swimming pool and a slide. We'd put the kids in the pool, try to stay awake for safety purposes. But, but the question always was, are we there yet? And we'd say, well, look at those cows. Keep looking. We're, we're going to be there. It was like 48 hours, like forever. But, and, and, and of course, you know, it was back in the day when there weren't seat belts, and they'd be fighting in the back seat, and you'd be reaching, trying to get, some of you remember, you were on one end or the other of that deal, and they're trying to grab them and swat them, you know, what... I said that one time, and a guy came to me and said, you know, I found that if you tap the brakes, it brings them back into play. And just... <laughs> so, I would encourage you, if you were not here last week, to go online and see uh, Pastor Rob's, uh, Rob's talk, Pastor Rob's thoughts on Mark 13, because this is a challenging passage. It has to do with prophecy. Jesus has come into town the, the Sunday before he rides in, or the weekend before, it's what we call Palm Sunday. He's hailed as a king. He stays outside of town and goes in every day to teach in the temple courts, and people are hammering him. Where do you get your authority, and should we pay money to Caesar, and all that kind of stuff. And he comes out every night, and on this one day, this is just two or three days before he goes to the cross, on this one day as he comes out, one of the disciples says, this is in Mark 13, the first few verses, aren't those stones in the temple magnificent? They make it across the valley, and he's sitting there with four of his disciples, two sets of brothers, Peter and Andrew, James and John, fishing families. These are guys who are used to prediction, at least for the weather. They're trying to guess how it's going to be and so forth. But he says, let me talk to you about that over there, because he's the kingdom person. He's been giving them kingdom talks for three years. Back at the first chapter of Mark, it says that Jesus comes preaching, turn around, here is the kingdom. These are folks in their culture who have been expecting a kingdom like David's kingdom, King David, that was a thousand years before. 
They've been down sort of in a, not a great place since that, and they're expecting this new kingdom. They turn around, and here's this carpenter guy from the hills in Nazareth, and it, it freaked them. They, it just didn't fit anything that, that they expected in a kingdom. So for three years, he's got these 12 guys, and he's talking about the character of the kingdom. And in Mark 9, he says, it's going to come in power. He didn't say that at first, but in Mark 9, he says that. And now in Mark 13, he's talking to them about a clash of cultures. And when he says, you see that over there? Let me tell you what's going to happen to that. He tells them what it is, and they have two questions. When is it going to happen, and what's the sign? What's like the teeing up so I know what to expect? Well, when you read this language in Mark, the 13th chapter, and I'm not going to read it all because it's 37 verses, but let me just read a portion starting where Rob left off last week. In Mark 9, 14, it says, When you see the abomination that causes desolation, standing where it does not belong, i.e. in the temple, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the roof of his house go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get his cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter because those will be days of distress unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. And he goes on. Well, he, he's talking about a time that will happen within their generation of the next 40 years. In A.D. 70, Titus came in from Rome and destroyed the whole place, destroyed the temple. They got the gold out of the temple, took stone from stone, exactly like he said. Now, some folks apparently had paid attention to Jesus' word, and they fled the town, and they were spared. But there's a hint in that same text of what we call apocalyptic language, the end of time. So that there, there is a statement throughout Scripture in various places that Jesus will return. He came once, set up his kingdom, is coming back again for us. And those two things get sort of mushed together. If I can, I don't know if mushed is a word, but it is now. It just mushed together. So when I read that kind of language, I say, could that be true? I mean, I have to decide whether what Jesus is talking about, whether that's true so the point one on your, on your bulletins, the key question of life is what is true? If I, can, if I can figure out what's true, then then the rest of life can revolve around that. I spend lots of time across the country. I have the privilege of speaking to university students and, and to 20-somethings, and, and I encourage them, please don't use Wikipedia as your true north, because anybody can change that. And I have a friend here who's an airline pilot, and he said, you know, they, they roll the planes out once a month, I think. Is it once a month, Jim? And they go out to a, to a particular place to calibrate the compasses. Because you want, you want planes that, like, know where they are. And pilots who, like, know, you, you don't want to say, well, we're coming in. I think we're going to only miss it by three miles. You don't want that. You want to know what's true. And, and so the question for Mark 13 is, do I believe him? Do I believe Jesus? Well, the first layer of his particular prophecy came true within, his, within that generation, essentially, within 40 years. And there were many prophecies about the Messiah. 700 years before Jesus came, predictions were made about him, and it was true. And within his lifetime, predictions were made about things that would happen, and they were true. And in the crucifixion week, predictions were made, and they were true. There's every reason to believe that if he says, I'm coming back, that that's true. I have a 
a friend who's with Jesus now. His name is Charlie White. I've mentioned him to you before. He was the um, chief of staff for a congressman when we were in D.C. Wonderful guy, former Navy sub-captain, and he had come to the Lord when he got cancer. He was in his mid-60s. He'd never thought about God before, and he gave his life to Jesus profoundly. It was tremendous to see. And I went to see him. He had just a few days to live. He was in hospice care. He was skeletal when I walked in, but he grinned at me, and he said, Dick, tell me one more time, what does it mean when it says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord? Like, how does that work? And I said, well, Charlie, I, I think it means to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. I mean, like when you come for me for counsel, it's deep like that. And uh, I said, I don't know how it works because I haven't done that part yet. I just, you know, but everything that I've believed about Jesus and how he works and I followed it, it's true and it works. And I have every reason to believe that that part that you're asking me about will work. Prophetic passages, though, make us nervous because we can't quite, you know, we try to figure out the timing. And even the prophets themselves who spoke these things, they don't know the timing. There's a passage later on here that says in, in the coming of Jesus, even Jesus doesn't know, only the Father knows. So don't waste your time on timing. But it's, it's like driving from eastern Colorado toward the Rocky Mountains, and it's evening time, the sun is going down, it, it's, it gets way behind over there on the western slope, and the fronts of the mountains, the, this slope, the front range, start turning purples and blues and blacks, and they all meld together. And when it does that, it looks like it's just one mountain, when in fact it is a series of ranges with many miles between. So you, you don't have a good, so you know that it's there, you just don't know what's there, and that's the character of this passage. So point two is who I believe determines oftentimes what I believe. If I start trusting in you, tell me some stuff, I believe it. So who I believe determines what I believe. And uh, when I was growing up in the 50s, we had a little television after 1956, had one of those little black and white televisions, you know, that, and, and it only, there were only two or three channels at that time, and it'd go off like at 10 o'clock at night and go to that signal, that little, anybody remember that little signal? You just sit and watch the signal because it's so cool to have one of those. We used to have radio, and now we got this. And, but the newscasters back in that day, on NB, I think it was NBC, were Chet Huntley and David Brinkley. They were a team. And then there was Douglas Edwards over on CBS. And I always watched Douglas Edwards. I don't know why. Maybe it's because my dad watched it or something. And years later, I was giving the invocation at a college commencement, and Douglas Edwards was the speaker. And I was so excited, and I went to him before the deal. I said, Mr. Edwards, I just want you to know that back in the 50s when you were on, when you were on TV, my friends, some of my friends watched Chet and David, but I watched you. I'm your guy. And he looked up to me and put his hand on my shoulder and said, my son. And, it, you know, it was just a moment. It's like a blessing or something. I don't know what it was. But my question is, who shapes your thinking, whether it's on TV? You know, maybe it's Diane Sawyer or Brian Williams or Jim Lehrer or Gwen Ifill or Anderson Cooper or The Drudge Report or Charlie Rose. Or, I mean, you can go on and on and on. Who is it that's shaping my thinking today? Maybe it's a sports hero. Even though we don't know if he knows much, but he can just drill the ball at, you know, 528 feet over the fence, or he can throw a, a pass 50 yards down the field into a space the size of my head, you know, whatever. And when he says stuff, even if it's not about his area, we say, well, that probably makes sense because he can throw a ball, you know. Or, or a music icon or a movie. Who is it 
that I believe. We live in a culture that spins us six ways from Sunday. We don't, we don't know. Is it, you know, I read it on this and I, who said that? Or what's the, what's the, the substance behind it? Who do we believe? More than that, in this culture, when you read stuff on the internet, it's disconnected from a person. It's just information. We don't know who put it there half the time. I'm talking to some young people here today who were born after 1985. If you were born after 1985, you are the first generation in human history to not have to go to an authority figure for information. And inf information is just coming out of our ears. I mean, there will be more new knowledge, new information this year that comes to light than in the 5,000 previous years put together. Well, I can't get my head around that. But knowing who said it or who authenticates it is critical. So here is Jesus who tells them what's going to happen, and then he gives them direction. This is the direction. There are six places in these few verses where he tells them what to do. I love it when you describe something and it makes me nervous, but then you say, but here's what you do. Don't be nervous, do this. This is what he says, Mark 13, 5. Jesus said to them, watch out that no one deceives you. So that's the first thing he tells them. So the word is look. Look that no one deceives you. Mark 13, 9, you must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. Here is this kingdom culture over against this temple system culture. Jesus has just said, everything that you are about, your whole world revolves around that culture, is going away. And people will haul you into the synagogues because you have stepped into this other culture called a kingdom culture. Mark 13, 21, 23. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, don't believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and miracles to deceive the elect if that were possible. So be on your guard. There's that word again. Look, watch, be on your guard. I've told you everything ahead of time. Verse 32, 33, no one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father, talking about this event out future. Be on guard, be alert. You do not know when that time will come. Verse 35, therefore keep watch, because you don't know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. Verse 37, what I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. So what do I do when I don't know what's out there, when I don't get it, I know some stuff's coming, but what do I do? He says, watch. He says, literally, be awake. Keep your eyes open. Don't be sleeping. Don't be over in the corner sucking your thumb in the prenatal position or something. You know, be, be alert to what's going on around you. And so I ask, well, what do I keep my eyes open for? What am I looking for? Well, he's indicated falsehood will be one of the markers. Falsehood out there will be one of the markers of the end times. False messiahs, false prophets, false information. Today, we have a totally different range of false prophets or messiahs than they would have then. I mean, you know, we don't have some dude coming into town with sandals and long outfits saying these, you know, the end is near. We don't have that. What we do have is a whole range of different things, so it's important to know what's true because point three, what I, what I believe determines what I do. 
what I believe determines what I do. The kingdom culture is showing up, and here we are 2,000 years down the pike. And what kind of false thinking do we need to guard against? Well, the big three things that we deal with in our lives are money, power, and sex. Those are three big ones, right? Now, there are other things, but those things are like at the forefront. Our culture, not always, but often says about money, get it and keep it. Kingdom comes along and says, give it, share it. Biblical economics is keep that money moving around. Sometimes Jose needs some, sometimes Dick needs some, sometimes Susie needs some. Move that, it's because it's not yours. It's not your money. I didn't wake up this morning and saying, I'm so cool. I just, you know, I thank you both for giving me life. And No, 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 no. I'm here because God's gracious. My autonomic nervous system doesn't work because I'm cool. My autonomic nervous system works because he's gracious. And that's the way money works. He gives me the capacity to earn money, and I get then to share it and give it. Our culture says about power, get it and keep it. You're in the catbird seat. You can tell people what to do. That's what you need to do. Go after it. Be the chief mucky muck. Jesus comes along and says, you know, I had power. I had rights and privileges, and I let it go so I could redeem you. Why don't you do that? Like, why don't you use your power to serve people? Why don't you do that? Wherever we find generosity and service, it's a kingdom theme. Wherever in our culture, it doesn't have to be in a church, or but wherever you find those qualities, those are kingdom qualities. And sex. Now, this is a more profound subject than money or power. And sex is a thing that is being sold to us in our culture as a currency. We're in a war zone over this idea. We're in a war zone over how we see sexuality. And it, it's used to sell everything from cappuccino to cars. So what I'd like to do is take five or six minutes, and I'd like to be grandpa, okay? This is going to be the grandpa talk about sexuality, okay? Some of you say, oh, brother, the old one is going to come. Others of you are saying, wow, he's going to talk about sex. It'll make church interesting today. You know, it just... We have three daughters and a son, and our third daughter writes books. She has three boys, 11, 9, and 7. We feel she deserves it. And uh, she was the wild one, and not bad, but she just a lot of energy. And so, and when I told her, because I shared some of these thoughts two weeks ago in Washington, D.C., to a congregation whose median age is 28, okay? And uh, when I told her what I was going to talk about, she said, Dad, you need to be talking to elementary kids about that. Because today, unlike in my day, the sexually saturated culture is going to the to the youngest, to the elementary kids in junior high and so forth. But what I would like to do is to talk to you who consider yourselves young. Like if you're under 58, you need to be listening. That's my deal, that's my, no, I'm just kidding. I'd like to talk to young folks for just a moment and we older one, you can listen in, okay? Think with me on this. These are just some ideas, I'm not asking you to buy this, I'm just asking you to think with me because God's concerned for my whole person. Early on, curiosity takes us there about sex. It just does. Our, our eldest daughter, Erica, when she was four, learned to read. She came in and said, Dad, 
I want to read the Bible. What part should I read? And she said, I said, well, let's just start at the beginning. Just, you know, just go. Well, Genesis is a very interesting book. A couple weeks later, she walks in, and Ruth is at the sink, and she's washing dishes, and Erica walks up behind her, four years old, and says, Mommy, I just, I was reading in the Bible, and it tells this thing about Sodom and Gomorrah, how the town was destroyed, and, and Lot took off to the mountains with his three daughters, and they, they got him drunk up there and went in and slept with him, and they had babies. How, how does that work? And she's at the sink, and she's going, hmm, like that. And then she says, why don't you ask your daddy when he gets home? Which she did. God's not nervous about sex. It's his idea. This is his idea that we are sexual beings, male and female. This is, I mean, you read Song of Solomon. I mean, he's very direct. Song of Solomon, chapter 4, it says the man is talking to his true love, and he says, your, your eyes are like doves, and your, the, the, your hair is like a flock of goats coming down off Mount Gilead, and your, your neck has shields on it, and your breasts are like twin fawns among the lilies. And Well, the metaphors don't translate. And I'm, I, this is Bible I'm talking to you. The metaphors don't translate. You know, you don't say, you know, honey, you got bird's eyes and you got goats coming across your face. You know, that, that doesn't quite connect today. But the fact is, God has designed us as sexual beings, male and female. That's marriage. That's what that's about. His idea. He wants us to be whole. Christian Smith is a sociologist, University of North Carolina. This is what he says among a great section of teens today is their religion. This is their view of God. He calls it moralistic therapeutic deism. No teen would ever call it that. But this is, this is what it is. There is a God who exists, who created and orders the world and watches over human life on earth. God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Here's the key. The central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when he's needed to resolve a problem. I go put in a quarter, get 25 cents worth of God for this particular deal because I need to be happy and feel good about myself. In the clash of cultures, happy is not the goal in the kingdom of God. There are lots of times when I haven't been happy in the kingdom because life is hard. How many of you know that? Stuff happens you didn't expect, and we don't know what to do, and it doesn't work out like I thought. So happy isn't the goal. Wholeness is the goal. And the enemy comes along, and what he wants us to be is fractured, or at least compartmentalized. He wants us to compartmentalize our thinking so I can go do whatever I want to be happy. Nowhere is this more evident than in the area of sexuality. We live in a culture that sells us down the river with layered lies. Casual culture, where lines are blurred and absolutes are dismissed at every, at every turn. What, here's, here's the thought. If you don't remember anything else about this five or six minutes, just, just, just remember this. The lie is this. Sex is about body. It's not connected to emotion, not connected to psyche, not connected, it's just your body. Just go do it. Feels good. Do it. That's, that's, that's the lie. No doctor who is worth his or her salt believes that. They know that emotions fuel physical ailments. No therapist believes that. 
No social worker who deals with sex abuse cases believes that. Why would I buy that? Why would I do that? Well, I, you know, I, I look at this and I think casual sex is the siren song of this culture. We are saturated with it. You know, it's, do we have a double shot caramel latte or do we go to bed? I'm telling you what young people tell me. I didn't make this up. I just asked them, what's it like in your school? What's it like where you are? What's the thinking there? Casual non-married sex promises what it cannot produce. It suggests intimacy but leaves me absolutely, totally exposed and vulnerable. It's spending my life. It isn't investing it. It's giving away a piece of me at a time. And I got to tell you, I confess to being confused about one thing. This whole business about purity. We live in a culture that is obsessive about purity in air, purity in water, purity in food. Well, like, what about purity in me? Like, where, where does that land on the, on the scale? 1 Corinthians, the sixth chapter, 19th verse, reads like this. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you've received from God. You're not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. It's not just my flesh and bones and sinews and nerves. It's my person. This church has a pivotal point in its history that came because Nikki, who is an exotic dancer, came on a Sunday morning. She worked at a club in Denver, went to CSU. She came on a Sunday morning, and when they talked about Jesus, she said, I think I'd like to know him. And she came forward and got a New Testament. She didn't know what it was. She called it the book. She went home, read it in four days. She was a pre-law student. Read it in four days, called Pastor Derry. Many of you have heard this story. And said, I've been reading this book. In some parts I've read two or three times. And I just, I just have a question, just a couple of questions. One is, this one Corinthians part. And she read these verses. She said, do you, do you know that? Have you read that part? And Derry said, yeah, I read that part. She said, do you believe that? He said, yeah. She said, well, if that's true, if that's the truth, if that's true north, then I probably shouldn't be doing what I'm doing. And she said, the only reason I'm doing it is to save money for law school, and if, if guys are stupid enough to come watch half-naked women dance, I'm smart enough to take their money. <laughs> the other part, she said, with this, this Matthew person says that if I trust God, if he takes care of the li lilies of the field, he'll take care of me. Well, it changed her life. It changed the life of this congregation. What's, the, what's at the heart of sexuality? At the heart of sexuality is vulnerability. I have a 31-year-old friend who was an aide to me in D.C. named Jeremy. He's been married three years, has a five-month-old boy. I told him I was going to talk about this in D.C. I said, talk to me. He said, this is what I think. If it were not for the built-in drive and intense pleasure, we might never on our own be willing to be that vulnerable with another human being. You say, but I'm so tempted. I get that part. Temptation is huge. The war isn't over there. The war is in the four and a half inches between my ears. This is a huge battlefield right here. For everybody, this is where the battle is, right here. And self-pity can fuel it. Well, I need this. Well, I don't want to, you know. The culture uses it for commerce. They want you to connect that way because they get a dollar or whatever it is. The culture has said for 50 years, if it feels good, do it. It's just body. It won't make a difference. You're free. You're free to do what you want. I have a friend who says, if what you do with your life 
doesn't make a difference. It doesn't have a consequence. You're not free. You're meaningless. What I do with my life makes a difference. And my life is connected to my body, to my spirit, to my emotions. Let me just say this. I'm done with this part. Let me just say this. This is Grandpa talking. Young people, you are designed for greatness. You're designed for nobility. You are valuable. Don't believe the lie. It is not true. Do not fritter your, your life away in little pieces. There are numbers of us sitting here, standing here, who have said, if I could go back and change some stuff in my history, I'd do it in a nanosecond. Because I didn't know. I'd do it in a nanosecond. Well, the good news from Jesus is that one, on the one hand, he helps us because I talk to young people and they say, you don't understand my school. At my school, if you don't have sex, you're just weird. You're just weird. What can I do? I don't want to be weird. This says, when they drag you before councils, people who want to judge you, he, his Holy Spirit will give you words. I pray for you young people that he will give you both the power and the words to be able to say, this is where I'm standing. You do what you want, but I only have one life, and this is how I'm going to live it. For those of us who are farther down the pike and we say, man, if I could get that back, I'd do it. Good news for you. This is the God who forgives and redeems. I had a guy come to me last night after service. He said, one, one thing you didn't say, you need to say this. He said, I've been all over the map sexually in my history, but you, you need to tell the people tomorrow that Jesus can restore your innocence. There's this phrase in the Old Testament that God restores the years that the locusts have eaten. I believe that to be true. So the enemy wants you to be condemned by your history, and Jesus is already taking care of your history. What I'm saying is going forward, going forward, say from this day on, I want to have my life remolded like it says in Romans, the 12th chapter, that give him your bodies as a living sacrifice, consecrated to him and acceptable. Don't let the world squeeze you into its own mold, but let God remold your mind. Let me close this way. What he wants for me is a whole life. So I need to ask, what's true? What do I believe? What do we believe? Who do, who do we believe and what do we believe? We're called to be aware. We're called to be on guard. We're called to watch two ways. One is for the falsity that would lead me down the primrose path and just totally foul up my life. I'm also called to watch for his second coming. I don't know when that will happen, but I gotta tell you that when it does, what happens will be better than what we have here. I don't know what it's, I don't know about the pavers that are streets of gold. I don't know how all that works. It's like my answer to Charlie. I haven't done that part yet. But, but I know this that this God who has cared for me when I didn't care for myself will care for me more in the future going forward. And that there's this, this thing when I talk to old people, I mean really old people, I'm just moderately old, like 90-something people, those people when the bodies are going and they can't do as much, they're so, sometimes they're so alive because of their connection to God that you just want to hang out with them because you just, you just sort of sense him when you're in the room with these people. My mom was 93. She's having her 93rd birthday. And uh, my sister called from Orange County, California. She said, what are we going to get for mom? Well, what do you get for a 93-year-old person, you know? 
they'll give it back or they'll forget where they put it, whatever it is. So you give them consumables like ice cream or something like that. And so I said, why don't you take mom to a really nice restaurant for dinner? So my, my two cousins and my sister took her to Dana Point Ritz-Carlton Hotel, Dana Point, California, Ritz-Carlton Hotel for high tea. Mom, you know, she's a dresser. She got all dressed up and they took her there. They walked in. There was a guy playing a huge piano, one of these grands, those Busendorfers or Steinways or whatever they are. And, and my cousin, after they got seated, walked over and said, do you ever let anybody else play the piano? Because my mom was a tremendous pianist. He said, well, what do you mean? She, she said, well, this young lady here is 93 today, and if you took a break, it'd be great. And he said, well, let me see. A few minutes later, he came over and said, ma'am, you're on. And my cousins and my sis took her over and put her down at the piano, and she started playing. She had a great voice at 93, and she started playing show tunes, and then it morphed into hymns. And then she went to an old camp meeting song that nobody would have known there, I don't think. And she just threw her head back and started to sing in the Dana Point Ritz-Carlton Hotel lobby. There's going to be a meeting in the air in the sweet, sweet by and by. And oh, I want to see you over there way beyond the sky. What singing you will hear never heard by mortal ear Will be glorious, I do declare. For God's own Son will be the leading one in that meeting in the air. And by the time she finished singing, people had gathered from around the hotel, around that piano. They were drawn to this cry of the heart, this joyous cry. And my sis and cousins stand over here bawling over on the side, you know. And, and the, there's something about anticipating and watching for the second advent of Jesus that is powerful. We don't know when, we don't know how it works, but if he has been with us to this point, you can bet whatever is coming off the charts. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Just with our heads bowed and with no one looking, I want to ask a different question. I don't know that I've ever asked this question until this weekend. You know, parents, you have your children. You're down in the trenches with them every day. I want you to know that we pray for you. Young people, you're fighting battles I had no idea about when I was your age in the intensity of the war. But I think grandparents have a unique role to play. When you become a grandparent, I have a theory that you feel immortal because you feel like the line's going on to the, beyond the next generation. If you're a grandparent here today, I would like you to join me in just standing up where you are in proxy for your grandchildren in their place on their behalf. Would you just stand, if you're a grandparent this morning, just stand where you are all across this sanctuary. You have been given a gift. You know what parenting's like. Grandparenting's a different ballgame. You have been given the gift of the capacity of praying for grandchildren. Some of us are distanced from our grandkids. We aren't able to get to them or for whatever reasons, but we can pray. But I'd just like to pray a blessing, if I may, a pastoral blessing on you today. Father, thank you for these dear friends who stand in your presence. I pray that you will, you will uh, give them vigor and direction in how they pray 
how we pray for our grandchildren. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that we have the privilege of being grandparents. Help us to support our children in ways that, that you could show us, but particularly for those moments when we're with the little ones or the teenagers. Help us not to shy away from questions, but give us the words and the insight to know what to do. In a generation where families are fractured, help us as grandparents to provide a glue or a reach that could not otherwise happen. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for this moment together. We believe you for a positive outcome. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. You may be seated. Thank you, grandparents. We get to continue worship with our giving today. If you're here as a guest, please don't put any money in the plate that comes by. If you have that little card you filled out, stick that in. But this is a chance for us to celebrate with our means. It's because he's given us life that we're able to earn money, and we can do that biblical economics thing, spread the joy around. So let's, uh, as the plates pass, just feel free to stand and worship together with us in song. God bless you. it when a great voice sings a true song. Let's thank this young lady. We haven't done this in any of the other services. Thank you. 
That was almost as good as my 93-year-old mom. I just want no, I'm just kidding. It's great. It's wonderful. If you have a need this morning and you say, I'd just like somebody to pray with me, our prayer team is coming as we close. They're going to be up here at the front. And if you just need somebody just to have a word, just to say, you know, I'm just going through some stuff and could you pray, it'd be great. It's always a great moment in our service when we're able to do that. And now for the benediction. Here it is. As you go from this place into that white wonderland out there, be safe on the one hand, but be alert, be wide awake, keep your eyes open for falsity out there, and watch for the second coming of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, because when that happens, all bets are off, and uh, what a great moment that will be. Have a wonderful week. See you Wednesday night or next week. God bless you. Go in His grace.